Today on the Bill Kelly podcast, Canada has kicked out a Chinese diplomat and now China has responded in kind. We get the perspective of the national global news reporter covering Parliament Hill, Mackenzie Gray. The CRTC wants to modernize broadcasting, but what does that mean? Kevin Desjardins is the president of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters and he offers his opinion. And is Canada going to go digital with its money? The Bank of Canada is looking at it and wants to know what you have to say. Marvin Ryder of the DeGroote School of Business helps us examine the subject. I'm Shona Thompson filling in, and the Bill Kelly podcast starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The other shoe has now dropped in the latest political chess game between Canada and China over China's interference in this country. We have kicked out Chinese diplomat Zhao Wei in response to the targeting of Conservative MP Michael Chong and his relatives in Hong Kong. Now, Chong says he's pleased to hear the news, but it really should have happened two years ago. This crossing the line of diplomacy into foreign interference threat activities is utterly unacceptable here on Canadian soil. Now, China has responded by asking a Canadian diplomat based in Shanghai to leave by May 13th. Joining us now with more on the story is Mackenzie Gray, national reporter for Global News covering Parliament Hill. Mackenzie, thanks for joining us. I know you're very busy today. Hey, good morning. Yeah, happy to be on. Okay. The the Chinese response of kicking out one of our diplomats was not unexpected. There's always a dance that goes on at the diplomatic level. There are moves and counter moves, and uh, everyone on one side is dissecting what the responses are on the other side. Was this an equal countermeasure? It certainly seems like it. Um, you know, they kick out a diplomat from the Shanghai consulate, which is, you know, roughly equivalent to the Toronto consulate here. So, um, you know, I think it's important to note that this doesn't look like a huge escalation, which when you take a look back at the two Michaels and the Huawei saga was a, a kind of a hallmark of what China was doing. You know, they consistently ratcheted up pressure on Canada. You know, once Miss Meng was arrested, the Huawei CFO here, both the two Michaels uh, are arrested shortly thereafter. But it wasn't just that. There was other kind of economic sanctions on canola. Uh, on other agricultural goods, too. So there were trade implications is there uh, there as well, too. So it certainly doesn't look like that is the case here. But uh, when you think back to that Huawei scenario, uh, it took a few days for things to unfold. So we'll uh, certainly be keeping an eye on what happens in China. But the first step was certainly not out of proportion relative to what Canada did yesterday. Mackenzie, I'm wondering if um, there are people who are living and working, Canadians living and working in China, Beijing, Shanghai, whether they should be considering an exit strategy now. Well, the Prime Minister was just asked about that right before uh, we started chatting, and he didn't really give kind of any update. There's no uh, indication at this point in time that Global Affairs has changed their travel advisory. Um, That's a tough, tough situation. I don't want to speculate on whether or not people should be doing that. Um, but I think it is fairly encouraging at this point in time that it doesn't look like uh, the, the Chinese, at least on the expulsion of the diplomat front, have ratcheted up the pressure any further. Uh, and I, I don't think the liberals are going to be, uh, unless there are more stories coming out, um, going to be increasing any other pressure by kicking other people out here to further escalate the situation. Is there, I'm just trying to get the timeline in my head. You were referencing uh, the situation with Huawei and uh, the two Michaels, and, and that was certainly a very serious situation. The Chinese interference, did that uh, coincide? Did it dovetail with those events? Uh, in what, uh, what 
what are you referencing? Well, were, were they starting to interfere with um, our politicians, with our elections and that sort of thing? Was that sort of a dovetailing of what was going on there? Because well, Huawei, I mean, Huawei is vitally important to China. It's hugely yeah. powerful. Yes, no doubt. I mean, I think there's kind of different streams here. Um, you know, you go back to some of the hand-on stories that we've worked on here. That was well before the two Michaels. Uh, you go to 2021 in July. Uh, you know, that's referencing this Michael Chong thing. Uh, you know, that was in relation, and the reason that Mr. Chong was targeted and his family were targeted, according to the thesis documents, was because of uh, support that Mr. Chong had, quite vocal support, for parliamentary motions uh, outlining condemnation of Beijing for uh, their treatment of the Uyghur, the Muslim minority in the Xinjiang province there. So, the you know, the focus of, of certain things uh, is based on different needs from the Chinese, and that that's uh, from thesis reports. Um so we know that China has been trying to be involved well before the two Michaels, and they'll try to be involved well after the two Michaels. Uh, but the severity of the relationship and the, and the potential consequences, I think, were certainly ratcheted up during that uh, two Michaels period. Look, they were released. Things were trying to get a little bit better. We had you know, better diplomatic relations with Dominic Barton and other people who I think the Chinese viewed as relatively friendly towards them. Mr. Barton's now gone. We have a new, more kind of just... A professional diplomat in that area, not kind of a high-profile person like Mr. Barton was, considering his um, political and business dealings in that region. Uh, but, you know, China is going to continue to interfere in Canadian affairs. We've heard that both from the current head of CSIS, but also former heads of CSIS and other uh, experts who've worked in the security services in Canada saying that we're a target for them. But when we hear from Mr. Chong yesterday is that if this person wasn't expelled, it gave a basically lawn sign to China, to Russia, to Iran, to other adversaries to say, you can come and interfere in Canada and there's going to be no consequences. And I think the questions we're going to hear today from the opposition of the House of Commons is, you know, it's nice that you expelled this diplomat, but it took you a week after you were told in the Globe and Mail about it. And oh, by the way, why are you learning about serious national security issues in the Globe and Mail and not from the people like the head of CSIS, like your national security advisor, to tell you about these key importance. We're speaking with Mackenzie Gray, who's national reporter for Global News covering Parliament Hill. I'm really glad you brought that up because um, just yesterday, uh, Marco Mendicino was asked about that again, uh, and he has been tap dancing around an actual answer. It seems amazing to me that somebody in CSIS who would have this information, file a report, uh, you know, it would go up that food chain, but it, at no point did it pass over to the Trudeau government. That seems astounding to me. Well, let's let's take the listeners through the kind of the timeline here. The story comes out last Monday in the Globe and Mail about this. It really took the prime minister uh, about two days to get the story straight and collect the information from the various people. Uh, he says, look, I didn't know about this. Our ministers didn't know about this. Our chief of staff and other senior political staff didn't know about this. The, the quote from him is, the report never left CSIS. It stayed there. Well, it turns out that that was not true. The current National Security Advisor, Jody Thomas, who's had to testify at a number of occasions about foreign interference, called Mr. Chong up and said, actually, that's not the case. The report was delivered from CSIS to the National Security Advisor at the time. We don't know who the National Security Advisor was at that point in time, because back in 2021, when CSIS did this report, there was a lot of turmoil in that office. Mr. Trudeau had three different national security advisors in that year. We've been reaching out to them trying to figure out who knew that when. We haven't been able to get answers about that. But Mr. Trudeau, Marco Mendicino, the public safety minister, Melanie Jolie, the foreign affairs minister, all say they didn't know about this until it came out in the Globe and Mail 
Uh, and certainly that would be, uh, that is pretty concerning that a top level high security clearance document like this leaves CSIS, goes to the National Security Advisor, and they don't inform the Prime Minister about this. And when the Prime Minister is informed about it, they make the decision to kick a diplomat out. So clearly, the Prime Minister wanted to know about this information or felt he should have known about this information because this is the most serious action we've seen from the government on any of the foreign interference stories that we've done here at Global or our colleagues have done over the Global Mail with the expulsion of this diplomat. So the the political side swears up and down that they did not know about this, um, but it did make it over to the Privy Council office and to Mr. Trudeau's National Security Advisor, and there's been no explanation on which of the people who held that role were informed about this, and more importantly, why they made the decision not to share it with the Prime Minister or the Chief of Staff or any of the other relevant ministers. Well, Mackenzie, I know there's going to be more coming from this story over the days and weeks to come, and we look forward to your reporting on it. Thank you very much. Mackenzie Gray, national reporter for Global News, covering Parliament Hill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The CRTC, the Radio Television Telecommunications Commission, that's the governing body of broadcasting in this country, recently announced plans to, quote, modernize broadcasting. In light of the passage of the Online Streaming Act, C-11, it will, of course, involve public consultations on a wide variety of issues. Joining us to discuss this further is Kevin Desjardins, the president of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters. Thank you for your time this morning. Uh, Good morning, Shauna. Um, So a plan to modernize broadcasting, isn't this really about modernizing policy? Uh, well, uh, you know, broadcasting being a, a regula- regulated business in Canada, I, I think that you can't, uh, uh, you can't modernize or you, you can't uh, have the, the business uh, proceed unless the uh, regulatory frameworks and the legislation get, uh, get updated. And, you know, before Bill C-11 passed, uh, the last time that the Broadcasting Act had been uh, modernized, or, or I guess uh, brought up to date, was back in 1991. So, you know, it was really a, a, a time of uh, blockbuster video and Sony Sports Walkman. So it certainly um, had fallen out of uh, date and fallen out of steps, uh, a step with the, the times. And so, um, so yeah, so this uh, the the legislation was the first part, and uh, the regulatory frameworks are are the next part, and and we think that this is uh, is very necessary um, if we're going to uh, to adapt and adjust to the realities in the media market. Well, this is going to happen uh, in three phases with the CRTC. Uh, a lot of consultation will be involved before um, a brief on the policy uh, will be formalized. I believe it's in the fall of 2024 is what they're aiming for. That seems like a very short time frame, even though there hasn't actually been an update since 1991. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a number of processes that have to take place. And, and you know, I mean, for us, uh, I think that we're anxious to, uh, I think we'd be anxious to skip to the end and to have this uh, completed. But I think that everything, you know, sort of takes the time that it uh uh, that it takes were were I think gratified to see that the CRTC has um, I, I think has uh, started the processes uh, I think fairly soon after the passage of the legislation 
Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I, there's, there's a lot to capture, uh, just in terms of, you know, basically catching up with, as I say, the market realities and, and the changing players and, um, you know, uh, bringing the, the old obligations in line with the new realities. Uh, and, and so, um, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're hopeful that this is done, you know, in a thorough manner, but an expeditious manner. Well, I know one of the things that uh, the CRTC wanted to make clear is that while it will be looking at things like online streaming services and which ones will need to be registered with the CRTC, it won't actually actually be regulating things like social media platforms or the content on it. Yes, well, I, I, I mean, and I, I do think that um, that that is something that got I, uh, missed uh, somewhat in in some of the discussions. You know, uh, it's it's. A, 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 and in truth, the the platforms may be in, uh, but that is only if they act in a way which is like a broadcaster or a broadcast distributor. And so um, it was never about uh, social media users. Um, it was never about the individuals. And, and I think that... Um, and that was, uh, you know, a lot of discussion that was much ado about nothing. You know, I, I think that you that if you take a look at something like YouTube, you know, right now in the States, they are the exclusive um, uh, source for the NFL Sunday ticket. So, you know, something like that is them acting like a broadcast distributor. And I think that those would be fair uh, to continue uh, to consider um, those uh, social media platforms uh, as part of this. But I mean, th- th- there's a lot that's going to need to be uh, discussed and understood and evaluated through these coming processes. One of the things that uh, stuck out to me and, and may have to you as well uh, with the uh, Canadian Association of Broadcasters is evaluating market access, news and local programming, and competitive behaviors. That comes up in phase two. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, certainly supports for news um, is is something that we had raised throughout this process. And there's another uh, piece of legislation which is looking at news uh, as well, uh, which is Bill C eighteen. But you know, for us, we 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 think that uh, the real challenge at this point is how do we continue to support uh, news in Canada? I mean, there was a time when the entertainment uh, programming and the advertising that uh, was sold against it was what helped to support uh, news and broadcast news, which continues to be. Uh, the most popular source for Canadians, um, you know, as uh, advertising revenues uh, continue to go to foreign digital platforms uh, and as the cost of programming continues to get more expensive, it's it's really put the squeeze on things like news, which, you know, has has always been a bit of a, a, um, a money loser for broadcasters. But at the same time, it's something that, you know, they are committed to and 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 is important. Uh, but it's something that uh, certainly needs some additional support. Uh, I would suggest that it's just very expensive to produce local news, not necessarily <laughs> saying that it's a, a money loser. Um, I, 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 as soon as I said that, I felt uh, I, I knew that I had uh, put my foot in my mouth. But it is true that it is, you know, I mean, it, it's, it is a uh, cost intensive, and especially with broadcasters, right? Because this isn't just a matter of a, of an individual with a notepad, uh, you're talking about, um, you know, uh, whether if it's bringing out a, a you know, a, a recorder or or a camera, and uh, to be able to 
to edit and 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 send those uh, stories out. There's there's a lot of people involved with getting broadcast news out to uh, Canadians and in, in the way that they have come to expect it. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if part of the conversation of this is going to be um, about the situation where companies like Google, MSN, Yahoo, and others, they take the content that's created by Global News, Rogers, CBC. They don't pay for it. They put it on their platforms. They get ad revenue because of the number of hits that are generated because of that. But those content creators don't actually see any of that money. Yeah, and I, I think that's really what uh, Bill C-18 um, is is looking at at this point. And that's, you know, uh, looking to create a, a framework for negotiation so that we can negotiate with those players. I mean, right now, what those players are saying is, well, if you pass any sort of legislation like this, we're just going to shut down uh, any news uh, sharing that we do. Um, and which I think underscores the need for a piece of legislation like that to be able to provide for fair negotiation because these players are massive and dominant and dominant worldwide. And, you know, we're looking at a situation where about 70% of Canadian advertising revenues now are going to these digital foreign players. And we effectively have a, uh, a trade deficit in advertising and, you know, and advertising for as much as some people might see it as a nuisance, it's always been a force for good and being able to help support, you know, our news and entertainment programming here in Canada. So, you know, we really do need that. And the fact that these players like uh, Google and Facebook have said that they're going to take their ball and go home if uh, someone makes them uh, pay a, a fair amount um, for the benefit that they derive from uh, this news um, uh, content, uh, I think underscores the fact that uh, we really do need legislation like that. Uh, there's another um, line in this. Again, it's coming up, I think, in phase two, perhaps phase three. Um, and, and it's been interpreted different ways by different people. But the line reads, review the ways to protect consumers and include broadcaster codes of conduct and mechanisms for complaints. Uh, what do you see the Canadian Association of Broadcasters weighing in on that? Yeah, I mean, I, so what I'll say is that uh, there is a long-standing, there's a long-standing set of uh, of codes uh, that are administered by the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council. Um, that is uh, an independent organization, and it's something uh, to which you know all. Uh, broadcasters are uh, are members, um, and that way, uh, it's not a government agency uh, that is uh, that is responsible for taking these uh, complaints. It's uh, it's self governing. Um, you know, that's really I think the best way forward. It's complaint based. It's uh, it's uh, it's you know uh, neutral and independent and. Uh, and basically all broadcasters adhere to those uh, those codes of conduct, um, uh, you know, as they uh, as they undertake their work. So, uh, you know, the question is, with these foreign services that are now being captured uh, within the Canadian legislation, how is it that you bring them into 
uh, a similar sort of uh, uh, regulatory framework when it comes to uh, complaints over, you know, uh, you know, over uh, content. And so I think that that's going to be uh, a, a new challenge. Um, and, and that's something that for us, you know, I mean, uh, our, our members have, have already agreed over the years to adhere to this sort of, these sorts of codes. Um, uh, and I guess it will be up to the new and foreign players to uh, work through how it is that they intend to uh, organize themselves around this. Well, the consultations will begin very soon, and it'll be interesting to hear what the Canadian Association of Broadcasters has to say as the consultations proceed towards a policy launch expected in late 2024. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Shauna. Kevin Desjardins is the president of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Bank of Canada is taking a look at the creation of a digital currency. And it wants to hear what you think to help inform that process. We've contacted the Dean of the Dollar, Marvin Ryder, who's a professor with the DeGroote School of Business. Morning, Marvin. Good morning, Shauna. So when I hear about digital currency... Two things come to mind, and they're likely both wrong. Uh, One is crypto, and the other is, don't we kind of have that already? Because really, when was the last time you paid for anything with actual cash? Right. Well, if you don't mind, let me start with your second comment first. Okay. Uh, This is really why the Bank of Canada is studying this. Uh, Today, in Canada, less than 25% of transactions involve the exchange of cash. We are prepared to use a debit card, a credit card, we'll e-transfer money. We might even still write a check, but we just don't use cash. And there comes a point when you ask the question, then why are we minting coins and why are we printing bills if nobody really wants to use this form? Now, your audience is quite broad, and I'm sure older people listening to us say, well, I, I still use cash, and that's quite true. But you find if I'm in a room with people who are 45 years of age or younger and then ask them how many of you are carrying cash, nobody puts up a hand. They don't even think of doing that anymore. And this is why the Bank of Canada is doing this. Now, originally, nice people like me thought a digital Canadian currency wouldn't happen until the 2030s, a decade from now. But during COVID, at least in the early days of COVID, We all got worried that maybe passing cash to one another was a way to pass the disease to one another. Lots of restaurants and stores went uh, cashless, you know, tap, credit, whatever. And this seemed to speed up the process. So I think this is why they are doing this consultation period to hear from people and say, you know, what do you think? Now, again, I don't think it's around the corner, but looking five years down the road, I can certainly imagine a time where we just don't have cash anymore. Well, I think one of the other reasons the bank is is looking at this is because the U.S., the U.K., and uh, the European Union are all looking at it as well. Correct. You're absolutely right. So, again, a quick example, if I can. I visited Edinburgh around Thanksgiving time last year, 2022. There's a famous street there called the Royal Mile. There's all kinds of street performers playing. We've seen them here in Canada. And typically, what do you do? Well, if you enjoy the street performer, you throw, in this case, a pound coin into a hat, give them some money. In Edinburgh, in October of last year, nobody had a hat in front of them. Instead, they had a QR code with the request that if you like what I'm doing, e-transfer me some money. 
and I was just stunned. I went into variety stores to buy a bottle of, of Coke or Pepsi, whatever it happened to be, and nobody wanted cash. Can't you tap? Can't you use your credit card? I said, look, it costs you money when I do that. Don't you want the cash? No, we'd rather not handle it at all. So these things are beginning to happen on a global scale. And the other concern is we don't want to get left behind. In countries like China and India, they are even more close to a digital currency than we are. You know, it's interesting you make that point about uh, asking your students uh, who's got cash on them right now. I think the only thing that I pay for regularly with cash in hand is gasoline. And you would be an exception because most people prefer using a credit card for gasoline. I had it happen that I stopped at a gas station during the middle of a power outage to get gas. Somehow I could pump the gas, but when we went to pay, everyone had credit cards. They couldn't take credit cards. I was able to pull out cash and pay for my transaction. Made me a hero for that moment in the eyes of the gas station owner. But most people today, anything over about $10, they much prefer to use a debit or credit card. So one of the other points I made off the top, um, when I think of digital currency, I think of crypto. How is right. this different? Right. So uh, one of the key differences is that cryptocurrency, and we think of the big ones here, Bitcoin being the biggest of them, but there are others out there, something called Ether, what have you. These are issued by, I'm going to describe it as independent and somewhat shadowy groups of people. What, what is a Bitcoin worth? I don't really know because I don't know who's issuing it. They say that they have a relatively fixed amount. So as some Bitcoins are purchased, they disappear from the market. But I don't know. It's kind of like buying gold. I don't know what the supply of gold is or diamonds are. And therefore, I wouldn't base a national economy on it. I much prefer a digital currency that has a central banking authority that stands behind it. If you take a look at cryptocurrency, most people treat it like gold. They buy it and then they hold it. They don't use it as a true currency. Whereas a Canadian dollar or an American dollar are used hundreds of millions of times a day. So when we say that the value of the Canadian dollar compared to the US dollar is 73 and a half cents, we can say that with a lot of confidence. And it just doesn't change that much day to day to day. But if you look at crypto over the last five years, you know, some days it's worth $5,000, some days it's worth $50,000. How do you base an economy on a currency like that? So it has the has the advantage that it's digital like cryptocurrency, but it has the other advantage that a central bank is standing behind it. And you and I know the value uh, intrinsically, and we can then base our life on it. Okay, so what's the upside? What's the downside of, uh, of well, going with the, a digital currency? I think currency. the upside is, is cost, one of cost. Uh, as you know, we got rid of the penny. There's now talk getting rid of the nickel. What what can you buy for a nickel anymore? Um, we switched the $1 bill and the $2 bill to coins. There's talk of getting rid of the $5 bill and making it coins. So it's, it's, there's a cost factor. If we aren't printing money, we can save that. Uh, and the other is, if this is what consumers want, let's give it to them. We, we're voting with our pocketbooks. More than 75% of transactions don't use cash then at some point, if this trend continues, say when it gets to 90 or 95%, really, then what's the point? Now, the downside is it requires you to have a certain level of technology. My students who don't carry cash all carry a smartphone. And as you know, they almost live on their smartphone. Well, an older individual who's in their 60s or 70s or 80s may have a smartphone, but they don't live on it. They don't use it centrally the same way. So we can only really move to a digital currency 
when enough people are comfortable with the technology platforms that this digital currency would have to live on. Now, I say that to you knowing, and I think just about everybody knows how to use a debit card and credit card, but you'd have to be able to check balances, what have you, electronically. Not a lot of older people like doing that. Well, it's not just that they don't like doing that. I think they're really concerned about the safety and security of those apps and their phones. Correct. You're absolutely right. And this, again, is a key aspect of doing a digital currency. Uh, The Bank of Canada or the Federal Reserve Board in the United States will only move if they are sure they've got a... uh, secure, stable platform that just is not going to be hacked. Going back to digital currencies like uh, cryptocurrencies, excuse me, like Bitcoin, we've all seen stories where people have uh, invented them, forged them, faked them, stolen them. And we say, wait a minute, we can't build a, a stable economy on something like that. So that's the other part of this. We can only move towards it when we've got the secure system. But then again, flip it around. If you look at credit and debit transactions, They are very, very secure today. It isn't that much of a leap to say maybe we can extend that even further. Well, Marvin, as always, thanks for your insight. Something to think about. I'll send the tip in the mail. Okay. (laughs) Marvin Ryder is a professor of business at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.